Let's go to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew 19 is where we're headed, and um, we've been in this new series called DTR, Defining the Relationships, and looking at how we can seek the Lord first in the various relationships throughout our life, and uh, today we are moving into marriage, and the relationship of marriage is where we're going to touch on this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' words himself in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, where he lays out uh, very succinctly uh, a, a biblical view of marriage for us. Um, And so I pray this will be helpful to you as we dive in this morning. So there was a little girl, four-year-old Susie, couldn't wait to tell her mom what she had learned at school that day. So she excitedly came home, and with wide-eyed excitement, she told, retold the classic tale of Snow White to her mother. How Prince Charming came rushing in on the big white horse and slayed the dragon and rescued her from the castle, and how true love's kiss brought her back to life. And then Susie turned to her mother and loudly said, do you know what happened next? And her mom said, well, yeah, they lived happily ever after. And she said, no, they got married. (laughs) Unfortunately, that might be a familiar feeling to too many uh, in marriage today. And, uh, but that's, that's not what God has for us. That's not God's desire for us in marriage. It's not just to endure. It's not to be a suffering. It's not to be a hardship. He has a better design for marriage for us if we'll lean into that. And that's what we want to look at this morning. That when I follow God's design, marriage is good for me and glorifying to him. When I follow God's design, marriage is good for me and glorifying to him. So let's look at Jesus' words this morning in Matthew 19 and see what he has to say. Look at verse 4. It says, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. So three things about marriage this morning from Jesus' words here. Number one is that God designed marriage for creation. That God designed marriage for creation. Notice he says there in verse 4, he says, Have you not read he who created? And so he starts his definition of marriage with the creator God. That there is one God who is supreme creator of all things, and all things exist that all things that do exist were created by him, and therefore they fall underneath his supreme authority, his sovereignty as the creator God. He goes on, he says, and his creation started from the beginning, meaning that there was nothing existing before him, that God is the start of everything, and every, he alone is eternal, and all things come from his hands. And then he gets more specific. He says he created them male and female and said. So he's getting, ready to run, he's getting ready to launch into this definition of marriage here. But right there, I want you to notice, this is critical to understanding marriage, that God is the creator. And if God is the creator and the designer of marriage, he alone gets to say how it works. We don't get an opinion on this. 
Our culture doesn't get an opinion on this. The government doesn't get an opinion on this. Nobody else. God is the designer and creator, and so therefore he gets to tell us how it works. So with that in mind, I want to go now back to Genesis chapter 1 to look at the start of this design of marriage that we see in Scripture. So Genesis chapter 1, this will be on the screen for you, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we see in the very beginning God's creation of man and woman. But notice that very first line. This is so interesting. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Three times in one verse, God refers to himself in the plural. And this is not an accident, right? God wasn't having an off day. It wasn't like he was gassed from six days of creating, right? Like he's, he's doing this on purpose. He's revealing to us in the very beginning of Scripture here that God exists as the, what we call the Trinitarian God. The Trinity is the theological term for this. That God eternally exists in three persons. One God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each one of those three persons is equally God in every way. And yet, they are each distinct and they are different in their role within the Godhead. You have God the Father who is the creator. He is the, the, the one who reigns over all of eternity and judges righteously. You have the Son who submits to God the Father and comes to earth to manifest God's presence on earth and to save God's people through the cross. You have the Holy Spirit who submits to God the Son and indwells believers, teaching us and leading us in the ways of Christ. All three equally God, but three different and distinct roles in how they function together as the Godhead. And here it says that we were made in the image of that Trinitarian God. So what does that mean for us as humans? What's it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there's five things I'll lay out for you this morning. This is not exhaustive, but I think they're important for our topic today. Number one is that we are relational beings. Just as God functions in three persons in perfect relationship with one another, we are made in the image of God, and we are meant to be relational beings that live in community and in love and in connection with other people humans with other people. We're created to share this experience of life together, specifically, as we're going to see in a moment, with one member of the opposite sex through marriage. So we, have, we are relational beings by nature, God in, made in the image of God. Also in the image of God, we have distinct roles. Just as the three members of the Trinity each have a distinct role, and they have deference to one another in the way that they function together. God has designed men and women to have distinct roles in society and more specifically in marriage to facilitate good order and good partnership together, just like the Trinity. 
So we're relational beings. We have distinct roles. That's the second thing. The third thing that we're made in the image of God is that we are ruling in God's stead. The next line there says, let them have dominion over all the earth. God has designated us as humans, as his stewards on the earth, to rule and to order all of creation for our flourishing and for his glory. And also notice there, it says, let them have dominion. Men and women together in partnership. Right? This, is, this is all of us partnering together to rule and to steward what God has created. Thirdly, we are made in the image of God. We are equal in personhood. It says that he created them male and female. He created them. Both sexes are made in the image of God. Meaning they both have equal value and equal personhood before the Lord. As his image bearers. And they can both equally possess certain character traits of God that are unique to humanity as his image bearers. We all share the attributes of love and goodness and kindness and holiness and wisdom and this ability to create things. All of these are characteristics of God that he has has given to us uniquely as humans, both male and female, in the image of God. And then lastly, we are made in the image of God, meaning that we are blessed to extend God's rule on the earth. At the end of this whole section here, he says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so men and women are to marry and then procreate in order to extend his rule through godly families, through generational faith being passed on. And through doing so, God uses the family unit to bring order and structure and establish a foundation for the rest of creation to build upon. Because it's in that structure, it's in that unit that they are supposed to order and rule over everything else. And so we see through this image bearing that God created and he designed marriage to be the tool that he uses to serve his creation through us, his image bearers. Male and female. So that's the, that's the creation of man and woman, and he, he kind of lays out here the start of it. But then we really get to Genesis chapter 2, if we really see the, the official marriage, if you will, of, of Adam and Eve together, the first marriage that God does. Um, but in verse, chapter 2, verse 18, he says this. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit. Him. So God creates everything. He looks down. He sees Adam by himself. He's like, that's not good. Like, like, look at this guy. He obviously needs some help. Right? Like, can you imagine if Adam would have like done the Garden of Eden by himself? It would have smelled like barbecue and feet every day. Like that's all it would have been, right? Like we we wouldn't have had written language for 10 years, more than grunts, but we would have had a perfectly manicured multi-sport field in the middle of the garden. Um and every morning he would have woke up and been like, I don't know what to do today because there's nobody to give me a list. And so I don't <laughs> even know what is next. God said, obviously he needs some help. 
And so I'm going to make a helper, and this, key, this, this term is so key, a helper fit for him. There's all this other creation around him. There's all these animals. Like, can't we just grab one of these animals? Isn't that good enough? I could just partner up with one. No. No, that's not going to work. What he really needs is he needs another dude, right? Like he needs a bro he can hang out with and do stuff with. And No, that's not what he needs. What about a co-laborer, right, to carry some of the workload and so he doesn't have to do it all by himself and they can get more done together? Nope, not enough. How about a child that he can raise up and train so when he's gone, the next one can take over and we can... Nope. God says the first thing, God's first solution to the problem was he needs a wife. He needs a perfect partner fit to help him fulfill God's mission in every way. God designed marriage for the sake of his creation and for its flourishing through the partnership of a man and a woman. And so when I follow God's design, marriage lays a firm foundation for his creation. When we collectively as humanity follow God's design, the family, the marriage, becomes the foundation by which everything else grows and flourishes in the way that God intended So God designed marriage for creation. That's number one. Number two, looking back at Matthew 19 again in verse 5, look at what Jesus says next. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. He says it twice. Point number two, God designed marriage for companionship. For companionship. He says right there, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So marriage is to establish a completely new primary relationship in our lives. Up until that point, your parents or your family have been your primary people no longer. Marriage says that now there is a new primary person in my life. There's a new relationship that takes over everything else. A relationship that is like no other. Because it offers us the deepest possible companionship on this earth. He says it like this. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer independent of one another, but they are now interdependent, relying on one another in every way. They are no longer isolated but now they are now interconnected in every facet and in every area of their lives. They are no longer individuals, but they are now inseparable as one solitary unit, one flesh, he says, functioning together as a whole. And that term one flesh is used throughout the Bible to describe this this unique union in marriage And in its original context, it first and foremost is symbolizing the sexual union between a husband and a wife, right? That is supposed to be unique to marriage. There's something physically that happens 
and sex that bonds two people together. It bonds two souls together. That's really what the Hebrew says. It's the, the, the bringing of two souls together as one. And in that, there is just this deepest, most mysterious way that God brings us together as one flesh. One flesh physically means that you are fully vulnerable to your partner, completely entrusting yourself and your body to them and to their care. It means that you're, in marriage at least, your body no longer belongs to just you. It belongs to them as well, and their body belongs to you, and you're one physically. So much deeper and so much more meaningful and so much more impactful than our culture ever gives it credit for. God says you're to be one flesh. That starts physically, but it's not just physically. It's also one flesh emotionally. That you're called to invest yourself emotionally in this other person above all others. All past relationships, all future relationships are underneath and and below this primary relationship with your spouse. Making one another your primary connection. The primary person you depend on emotionally is that spouse. That's one flesh. Also, one flesh means financially. There's no longer my money and your money. There's our money because I no longer am concerned about just my needs or my wants. I'm now concerned about our needs and our wants, and we're in this together. One flesh means that there is no area of our lives that is not combined. There's nothing that is off limits to my spouse. One flesh in every area. Lastly, one flesh means spiritually. Because in marriage... We are bonded together by the Spirit of God. We studied that this summer when we studied Malachi, right? That in the union of marriage, that God's Spirit actually comes and does a work of melding us together. And now we together as a couple, our goal is to love and to honor and to worship God as one. One flesh means that we are one entity in every possible way. And God created no other relationship like this. No other relationship in all of creation. No other species, no other, nothing gets this but those that are made in the image of God. Marriage constitutes the greatest depth of human companionship. And it is a gift to us from the Lord. Now, having said all of that, we must address the cultural elephant in the room. Right? That this companionship, this marriage is designed by God between a male and a female. A man and a woman, a husband and a wife. There is no other combination that works for him. Because no other combination can be one flesh, truly one flesh, in all the ways that God created us to be. Now obviously many people in our culture reject this truth. Some want to even argue that the Bible itself doesn't teach this. Or that it doesn't speak against same-sex marriage or homosexuality. 
So I want to take just a moment this morning for you to see it for yourself. I want to show you the scriptures this morning so that you can know what the Bible says. And as Paul says in his letter, you won't be ignorant of the truth. So I'm going to walk you through five scriptures this morning on this issue. Number one is Leviticus 18.22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This is the first place in scripture where God clearly defines that homosexuality is a sin. Right after that, again, in Leviticus 20, 13, he goes even more specific. He says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, and their blood is upon them. So not only does this one point out that homosexuality is a sin, it also labels it as a sin that is punishable by death, which in the Old Testament law was the most severe category of sin. Now many would say, okay, Micah, I see that, but that's the Old Testament, right? That's the Old Testament law. We're not underneath the Old Testament law anymore. We're New Testament people now. Obviously, that doesn't apply to us. That's a discussion for another day, but let's go to the New Testament. Romans 1, verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to be to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here's a New Testament passage that clearly states, again, that homosexuality is a sin. It also clarifies that he's not just talking to men, he's also talking to women, both sides. And then finally, he actually spells out here why. Why is this a sin? Why is this an abomination? Because it is dishonorable to God. Dishonorable passions. It's dishonorable to God and his design for marriage. It's saying, God, you got it wrong. We have a better solution. Other verses in the New Testament that help us with this are 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which with, with which I have been entrusted. Once again, this passage shows us very clearly that homosexuality is a sin, and it's on par with all the other sins in the same list. But most importantly here, he says that it is contrary to sound doctrine. That it is contrary to the word of God and what it teaches. One more. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So once again, this passage lists homosexuality among a whole list of other sins. And in the original language here in the Greek, both here and back in Timothy, the way it describes, the word that it used to describe homosexuality here, it removes any hint of like a nuanced form of some homosexuality or just certain situations. The scripture is very clear that homosexual meditations, acts, relationships are all sinful and must be rejected. But I especially love this passage because Paul immediately follows this declaration of sin with a declaration of grace. Did you catch that? Right? He reminds us here that no sin, no sin is beyond the forgiveness and redemption of Jesus Christ. We all can be washed. We all can be sanctified. We all can be justified in Jesus Christ if we will repent of our sin and turn to him, no matter what the sin is. All of us hit something in that list. And, God's, and Paul says God forgives all of it if we come to him. That is the beauty of the gospel, my friends. That every one of us, because of our sin, whatever it is, is headed for hell and rebellion, and we deserve that death. And yet God in his love and his grace for us sent Jesus to come to earth and to die for our sins on the cross, to take the death that we deserved, and then he went into the grave, and three days later he rose back to life, proving that he was God, and saying, if you will just come to me, if you'll just lay down your sin and come to me, I will forgive you, I will save you, I will set you free from whatever it is. And so while, yes, it is a sin, I want you to hear this morning that you can be redeemed and you can be healed and you can be saved from that just like anything else. You just have to come to him. Come to Jesus. And so in this, we see God has a very specific design for marriage. And God's design for this perfect companionship in marriage is best seen in the original marriage story. So again, I'm going to go back to Genesis. It'll be on the screen for you here. Chapter 2, here's where we see the actual marriage, first marriage happening. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two, and they shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus was quoting earlier, right? And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So three things here that we see about this companion that God created that was fit for the man. Number one, it was a companion that was fit for him. God created men and women to be a fit for one another in marriage, to complement one another. 
to fill in each other's gaps, right? Not just a fit physically, but a fit in every way. No other creature was fit to do this role for Adam. The companion had to be custom-made by God to be the perfect fit. Secondly, it was a companion, a companion that was taken from him. Literally. God made the woman out of the rib of the man. God made man out of the dust of the earth. And that's so interesting because most of creation, God just spoke it into existence. But not for humans. For us, he personally came and he made and he crafted the man and the woman as if it was with his own hands. Giving special attention and care and concern that they would fit together in this perfect union. And then lastly, it was a companion that was fully known by him. The very last phrase in that section of scripture says that they were both naked, meaning they were completely seen, completely known by the other one. Nothing hidden, nothing covered, all their flaws exposed. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. Yes, that meant physically, but it also represented so much more than that. That in the perfect union before the Lord, they were both fully known and fully loved. That's God's design for marriage. When it's, in it, when it's at its best, when it's functioning in the way that God designed, we are fully known and fully loved by one another. That is companionship at its deepest level. One of the things I love um, for breakfast sometimes is a grapefruit. I don't know if anybody else is on the grapefruit kick or not. Um, but, you know, you take one of these and you slice it in half, right? Put a little sugar on top. Scoop it out. So good. But when I cut this grapefruit apart, none of y'all are, like, agreeing with me here. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I don't care if you like it. I like it. Um, when I cut this grapefruit apart, though, if I put these two pieces together, look, they, if I do it just right, they perfectly fit again. They're a perfect fit for one another, right? In every way, they, they complete the whole. But even though they're a perfect fit, if I take them apart and if I look inside, they're actually different. They're similar, but they're a different design, slightly different composition, slightly different makeup, the way it looks. They're not the same. The two halves are not the same. But they are a fit for one another. That's the way God designed man and woman. We're similar. There's a lot of overlap, but we're not the same. We're not the same, and it's because we're not the same that we are a perfect fit for one another in marriage. That is the companionship that God was talking about. That's what he's designed marriage to be for us in relation to him and to his creation. He's given us different roles. He's given us different makeups. He's given us different giftings. But he's made us a perfect fit for his glory and for his goal of extending his kingdom on the earth. When I follow God's design... I can experience true, 
one flesh companionship. I can experience that perfect fit that I don't get anywhere else. One flesh. So God designed uh, marriage for creation and for companionship, and then lastly, for covenant. Verse 6 at the very end says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He designed it for covenant. When it says what God has joined together, that's another hint to us here. That marriage, again, it's God's design and therefore it's under his authority. And ultimately then it is his work. God is the one who marries two people together, right? It's not simply an act of two individuals choosing to come together. It's not two families coming together. It's not an act of the state. It's not even an act of Vegas as much as they would like to claim it. Right? Like, no, no, God does this work. It's his. He's the one who joins us together as one flesh. And we are, therefore, are accountable to him, first and foremost, for the covenant of our marriages. It's not just up to us. He's in this. And Jesus says, because God has joined you together, let not man separate. God means for marriage to last for a lifetime. It's a covenant between him and the couple that is not to be broken. And they are only to be separated by the Lord at death. Now we discussed this summer when we talked about marriage in Malachi, that the Bible does give two allowances for divorce, for the covenant to be broken But again, they're not even expectations, they're not requirements, they're just allowances. One is adultery, because it violates the one flesh relationship physically. The other is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, because it violates the one flesh relationship spiritually and emotionally. Otherwise, Jesus very clearly says, man should not break God's marriage covenant. And here's why. Let's not just say what it is. Let's say why. So we know God's heart behind this. God's marriage covenant is of utmost importance because it is a picture and a testimony of God's covenant love for his church. This is a witness to us and to the rest of the world of this is how God loves. And we see that best in Ephesians 5. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is again. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Three pictures that we see here 
in relation to God's covenant love for us. One is a picture of sacrificial love. Right off the jump, he says, Jesus gave up his life to show his love for us, to bring us back into relationship with him. He sacrificed himself for that love. Oftentimes here at Harvest, we define love like this, you be for me. You be for me. That's sacrificial love. That's putting someone else's interests ahead of our own, like we talked about last week. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Right? So because of our covenant love for our spouse, we should be imitating Christ's sacrificial love for them and them for us. It's a picture of Jesus' love. Also, it's a picture of sanctifying position. In this passage, when it says that Christ sanctified his church, it's not talking about progressive sanctification, right? Like the Holy Spirit makes us holy more day after day when we walk with him over time. That definitely happens, but that's not what it's talking about right here. The way that Christ sanctified his church was positional sanctification, meaning that we are declared perfectly holy before God the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, right? He sees us as righteous under the blood that we sang about earlier, that Christ saves us and he redeems us and he positionally sanctifies us before the Lord. That's what it's talking about. And so this section is referring solely to Jesus because I just hate to break it to you guys, husbands, you cannot do that for your wife, We cannot positionally sanctify our wives before the Lord. We do not have that power. But Paul is giving this as a specific example of Christ's sacrificial love. That he loved us enough to give his life so that we could be made holy. But here's the best part about this positional sanctification. This is why it's significant for the picture of marriage. Is that once you are sanctified holy before the Lord... It never changes. That is an eternal position. It lasts forever. No matter what we do, no matter what sin we commit, no matter what mistakes we make, no matter what we do, God redeems us and he loves us and he sanctifies us forever. And so for marriage, that gives us a picture, again, that the love that we are to have for our spouse is to be one that even when they mess up, even when they struggle with sin, even when they fall, even when it's against us, that we continue to love them because they are positionally one flesh with us. It doesn't stop. The marriage covenant continues. The third piece here, the picture, is of sustaining care. And I love this analogy that Paul gives he says, we're to care for our spouse as we care for our own bodies. Like your, your physical body, right? He's like, think about how you treat your body, right? First, you nourish it, right? Like, I'm pretty sure most of us had something to eat this morning, right? If not, you're going to be having a big lunch. Like, we make sure the food keeps coming. We nourish it. We give it what it needs to grow and to live and to continue. We make sure that it's taken care of. We nourish it and we cherish it. We value it. Right? We, we protect it. We do all kinds of things to make sure that our body is, is, is in good shape and is functioning right, and we cherish and protect it. So think about that picture for a moment. When your body, your physical body, when you get sick, 
or you get injured, do you just give up on it and be like, I don't like this body anyways, I'm out? Like when you break your arm, you're, like, you're not like, hey, just cut it off, I don't need that. We're good, just, it's broken, just cut that thing off. When your organ stops working correctly, you're not like, hey, just, just rip that thing out. No, we, we seek healing, we seek help, we seek to do whatever medicines or treatments are necessary to, to get our body healthy again so it's functioning and it's working correctly because we nourish it and we cherish it. That's the picture that Paul's painting here for our marriage. That when our spouse is sick with sin, when they are injured from the brokenness of this world and this life and their own decisions, our job is not to just cut them off and leave them on the side and keep going. Our job is to care for them and to nourish them and to love them and to help them heal. Because we're one flesh. We're one body together before the Lord. When I follow God's design, my life is a testimony of his covenant love. When we follow God's design for marriage, our lives, our marriages, our relationship becomes a testimony, a witness, a picture of God's perfect covenant love for us. Creation, companionship, covenant, all of that together, when I follow God's design for marriage, it is good for me and glorifying to him. Now some of us here today, you hear that, and you can rejoice in that because you've seen that, you've experienced that, you've, you've experienced the blessing of God's design in your marriage and in your life. But there are others in the room, I'm sure, who are struggling with what I just said. It's hard for you to believe that. It's hard because of your current marriage or your past marriage or your parents' marriage or whatever other pictures you've seen and what you've experienced makes it difficult for you to really believe that there is a way in which marriage is good and glorifying. Maybe you have hurt or anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's just doubt and fear. Can my marriage ever be what God's word says it's supposed to be? Maybe we even feel some shame or some guilt because of past choices or past mistakes in this area. Well, before we close today, what you need to know, what I want you to hear this morning is that the same God, the same omnipotent creator God who designed it all and his power created everything that we see is still the same powerful, miracle-working God. And he can do a miracle in your marriage. He can do a miracle in your heart and heal whatever brokenness is there from past relationships. He can make a way where there seems to be no way. He will always keep his promise to be with you and to carry you through every situation, through every broken relationship, through every struggle, if you just seek him first. 
he is working in your life and in your marriage right now. I promise you. You might not be able to see it. You might not feel it. It might not be obvious, but he is there and he is working. If you'll just trust his word. Trust his word, trust his design, and seek him first. And he will do it. Stand with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of marriage to fulfill your purposes in our lives, to fulfill your purposes in our world. God, we stand in awe of your masterful design and perfect plan for creation. Your perfect plan for marriage, your perfect plan for your church, God, you have all of it. There's no one like you. So God, we submit to your word this morning. We submit to your will in this area, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't see it, even when we don't like it. God, we believe that your word is true. Lord, fill us with your power to keep your marriage covenant and to glorify your name through our relationships. God, we cannot do this on our own. We need you. We need you, God. Work in us. Work through us. Lord, make a way in our marriages for the sake of your great name. We pray all this in Christ's name.